All right, everybody ready to roll? We are We are gonna dive right back into uh, our progression through Luke. We're gonna move into chapter four today, but before we do, I just wanna make a couple of opening comments about the end of three. I won't get into the genealogies. I mean, we actually could say, I know this sounds bizarre, but we could spend an entire week or two on just the genealogies and the significance of both Matthew and Luke's genealogies working back to the King, you know, King David and the throne of David and all the prophecies that were given that this would be someone who would emerge from the, uh, the line of the tribe of Judah. And so anyway, it's a, it's a fascinating study. I really don't want to go down that road. We could get way late. We'd never get through this uh, Gospel of Luke if we picked up every little detail that I'd love to unpack. But I did want to make a quick comment about the baptism of Jesus. And the only comment I want to make, actually two comments. Number one, a lot of people struggle. In fact, most religions revolve. A lot of people embrace the idea of Jesus as teacher, but they deny the Trinitarian notion of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And I just want to bring it to your uh, thought process as you catalog some of this, is that at the baptism of Jesus, all three parts of the Godhead, all three facets of the Godhead, all three unique individual persons of the Godhead, God the Father, Son, and Spirit, are present at the baptism. Obviously, Jesus is there being baptized. We know the Holy Spirit descends upon him like a dove. They can see that, and then the voice comes from heaven, the Father, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. I think it's important that you maybe have a place. I talk to you often about maybe having a launch place in your Bible. If you could just remember the baptism of Jesus being a picture of the three parts of the Godhead, it would help you. And then anytime you come across something that speaks to the issue of the Trinity, maybe just go back in your Bible to Luke, the end of uh, chapter three of Luke, Jesus' baptism and write in there and then become a Bible writer. I, I encourage you to do that so that you can begin to have a firm grasp and we'll kind of conclude with that today. How much do we know the word and what is one of the deep, deep needs of knowing the word, not being able to hear a sermon and kind of agree with it, uh, but actually own the word. And we talk about that all the time. My desire, our desire, all the pastoral staff and executive team and everything is trying to equip you. That's our task. Equip you for the work of service. Part of staying in the game, so to speak. Part of staying operating in the kingdom as a fruitful individual, as we'll see this morning, is your ability to use the sword of the Spirit, which in fact is the Word of God. Okay, so now we're going to progress on to chapter 4. We're going to look at Jesus in the wilderness and the temptations. And so I want to, not to group the temptations, but, but the actual three temptations of Christ that I believe are going to give us a picture of the three primary categories, overarching categories of temptation that Satan will attack you with and he attacks me with daily. And it, you could probably find any temptation under the category of one of these three categories as a subcategory of these three. And we're going to look at that this morning. You ready to roll? This is going to be a good morning. Uh, hopefully you're going to walk away with some things that are going to profoundly impact you as we move towards the celebration next week of, of actually Jesus' birth. All right, you ready to roll? Here we go. Luke chapter 4, if you have your Bibles, 
We'll start in verse 1. I'm just going to read 1 through 13. Verse Chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. Now remember, by the way, just a quick note. In addition to that, I said two points in the end of three. Not only the Trinitarian notion, but then Paul, uh, John the Baptist makes a clear reference to, I'm baptizing you with water for the forgiveness of sins, but there's one coming after me who will baptize you with fire. Okay, so he was talking about the Holy Spirit. So now Jesus is going to be the one, the new covenant reality that we, as Pentecost came, we're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Now God's presence is going to live within all of those who would believe into Jesus after he ascended back and made atonement and then poured out the Holy Spirit. Okay, just a second point on that that I missed a minute ago. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness. Interesting that the Spirit led him into the wilderness. Now, we talked quite a bit about this as we talked about our movement, Jesus becoming the successful Israel that came out of Egypt, went through his baptism into the wilderness, and then began to really defeat the purposes of Satan. We too are called into that journey to be successful as Jesus was successful. The Spirit will lead you into the wilderness after your baptism. I need to tell all believers, all especially new believers, that you will be led by the Spirit into the wilderness. What happens in the wilderness? You're tempted and you begin to get control, learn how to battle in the Spirit realm. I know that sounds odd to some of you, but it is a vital part of all of our journeys toward Jesus and toward His kingdom and ultimately towards fruitfulness. So for 40 days and being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days, and when they had ended, he became hungry. I think I would have become hungry long before that. And the devil said to him, again, a literal devil appearing uh, in, in, in the flesh? Probably not, because again, the Bible says, as we've talked about before, Jesus was tempted like we are. I've never had a in the flesh say, Satan come to me and tempt me. I think this was going on in Jesus' mind. These were thoughts uh, this is a spiritual battle in the mind, an unseen realm battle. And he said, and then Satan says, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Temptation number one, Jesus, how did he respond? It is written. What we'll be talking about all morning. It is written. I'm going to talk to you a little bit later about some of the verses, just a sampling of the verses that I have used in my life and continue to use to battle temptation. Okay. Jesus did it. It is written. Man shall not live by bread alone. And then verse 5, And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I will give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall all be yours. All worldly stuff that you can see, the visible realm, I'm going to give it to you. All, I'm going to give it to you, Jesus. I have the authority to do it. I'm the ruler of this world. The Bible's clear about that. And I'm going to give it to you. Jesus then says what? It is written. It is written. You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then finally, and he led him to Jerusalem. And again, I, I think I've talked to you a little bit about this in the past. I don't think it, that Jesus went in his physical body. I think in his mind, Satan took him to Jerusalem. You know, much of what goes on in our lives happens in our minds. We live, we can live a radically different reality in our minds. 
that's why it's so distracting and crazy and, and upending for people when they say he was such a good guy. He's, he was married or she was married and, and it seemed like they had a great family and all of a sudden she just she just leaves her family and she takes off and has a has a relationship, leaves her family behind. I mean, what happened? Well, there was a reality in going on in her conscious mind that she had created a world very separate from the world that we could see. This happens to all of us. I think this is what's going on here with Jesus. He is taken in his mind to Jerusalem. And Satan had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. Do you think that Jesus physically, literally stood on the temple? I don't think so. I think this was happening in the constructs of his imagination through this temptation. But it was very real. Let me tell you something. The, the temptations of Satan are incredibly real, though you may never see this force. We all can acquiesce. If I don't have the biblical narrative, I don't understand all the chaos that goes on in my mind and how to begin to parse it and understand what is going on. And people go crazy, literally crazy every day because they are unable to separate what's going on in the conscious mind and it merges into the real world and then all of a sudden you have again chaos and Jesus responds uh, excuse me to the temple and said to him if you are the son of God throw yourself down from here for it is written now Satan's going to use the scripture Satan does that as well this Bible has been used over and over for the purpose of satanic things Satan will use a verse misapply it doesn't work into the narrative that we always talk about and you can take virtually any verse in here and take it out of context and put it into another context and an inappropriate context and come up with a cult or any any way of viewing the world that's radically different than what Jesus is doing through the word which is the story of redemption through Jesus. If you're the son of the God, throw yourself down for here. Because it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. He's quoting the Psalms. And on their hands, they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Well, Satan now is quoting the scripture. And Jesus answered and said, It is said you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. So now this is the, uh, I want you to, this is a matrix, in my view, in which you can plug all sin and temptation into these primary three categories. Okay, now this is important to see. Now, I'm going to have some dear friends of Church at the Red Door. They were here from the very beginning. Chris and Gail Margaritas, they are actually going to read for us now a passage that I have preached on any number of times and a passage that still upends me. Let me just be clear about this. This particular passage in 1 John still grabs me every time I read it. Lord, do I, am I guilty here? Uh, cleanse my heart. Allow my affections to be riveted on the proper things. So Gail and Chris, thank you so much for doing this, and I'll turn it over to Gail and Chris Margaritas. Hi, we're Chris and Gail Margaritas. We live in La Quinta. We've been with the Church of the Red Door since it opened. It's our pleasure to read 1 John 2, 15 and 16 for you this morning. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, 
the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Pastor, back to you. Thank you so much, uh, Chris and Gail. I appreciate you doing that reading. And uh, it's good to have you back in the desert now, even though I've not seen your face yet. It's good to have you back in the desert. So uh, again, what, it, what was just read here? There are three, again, primary categories that are outlined. We get the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. This is how, if you want to know, this is how the entire world, this is how it spins in rebellion to God, trying to satisfy the very deep, most innermost longings that only God can fill and people consistently and unfortunately, in a, in a very chaotic way, pursue relentlessly these three primary categories. And again, what are they? Lust of the flesh, which is what? Well, that was the bread temptation for Jesus. Lust of the eyes. Hey, I'm going to give you everything you see, Jesus. I'm going to give you the entire, all the, all the beautiful things that you can see. I'm going to give it to you. I have the power to give it to you. And then lastly, the boastful pride of life. In other words, the need to prove his sonship as a mere lowly carpenter's son. So in the scene realm, he wasn't a known commodity. He was a carpenter's son from Nazareth. What good thing can come out of Nazareth? And he's trying to expedite. Now, Jesus is going to be known one day completely. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess, but he's trying to expedite. The temptation is to expedite the process of ruling on a throne. I'll call it throne grabbing. Prove yourself. You've got all the wisdom. You've got the knowledge. You are the Son of God. Prove yourself to be God. Now, this temptation, the hissing sound of Satan's voice, comes through, and I see it all the time. Television, everything else. We are divine. We are little gods. I mean, that's what the world clamors to try to convince uh, itself of, of, that in fact, we are the creators. We are the end and the beginning. Uh, not God, and they displace God. We will self-rule. And again, so you get the three primary categories. So I'm going to call these three things this morning. I'm going to call these three things. You ready for this? I'm going to call them appetites. In other words, how does Satan come at you? Just base appetites. It can be sex. It can be food. Just your creaturely appetites. Now, is sex bad? No, it's absolutely created by God. Is food bad? Absolutely not. We enjoy it. I mean, Jesus himself... Uh, the, many things revolved around a meal. So there's nothing wrong with food. But when food becomes, or sex, or these base instinctual appetites become your driving force, it always leads to addiction. And it leads to chaos. And your lives, your, our lives can be destroyed through appetites. So appetites, number one. Number two, I'm just calling them shiny things. You know, what our eyes want, to, that we see something, we want it. Bigger, better, faster, whatever it is, we just want everything that we see. Now, is there anything wrong with having maybe a nice car, or a nice home or something? No, but where is your primary focus? Where is your where is your driving force? And are those things controlling you? Are shiny things controlling you where your life becomes uh, built around? How, how much of your mental capacity during the day is driven by the accumulation or the desire for what I will just simply call 
The things of this world are the shiny things. And then lastly, it's what I just referred to a minute ago is throne grabbing. It's self-rule. It's, it's I am wise enough and understanding enough to become in a way, whether I would actually say these physical words, I'm become my own ruler or the ruler of my own life. Self-rule, I will grab the throne of God and his sovereignty and his direction for my life and I myself will determine the direction for my life. Now, what's fascinating about these three things, appetites, shiny things, and throne grabbing, just words that I've, uh, descriptions that I've come up with and my own way of thinking about it, uh, we see this repeated in the very first temptation all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3, verses 4 through 6. Listen and see if you can hear appetites, shiny things, and what? And throne grabbing. Can you hear the hiss of Satan's voice even in the garden from the very beginning? These three overarching categories. Verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. He's lying. He said, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Sounds like some a temptation to grab the throne. You want to be like God? You can have your own throne. Knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, appetite, and that it was a delight to the eyes, shiny things, anything we can see in the world, which has got, this has got to be better. I just bought some new pillows for the couch, but I, these are pillows are better. Let's throw those pillows out. I've got, to, I've got to come over here. We're just constantly moved and motivated by what? By everything that we see. And that's exactly what's happening right here in the garden. It was a delight to the eyes. The tree was desirable to make one wise. And she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her. And he ate. Again, you see this repetition. The fruit's going to taste good. The eyes, all the fruit look good. And then finally... Simply the boastful pride of life, which is I can navigate I can navigate my way through life because of my wisdom, because of my own sovereignty. I will grab the throne. I can, I can run this ship better than any god out there. In fact, uh, I'm, if I need an occasional blessing, I'll get it. But deep down, I will run it as I will run it. You know, what's fascinating about this, I came across this uh, a number of maybe a month or so ago. I saw an article... And it was talking about the 40 most requested songs at funerals. I think it actually was in the UK, but the 40 most requested songs. And uh, there were a bunch that were fascinating to me. Uh, but let me, there's just three of them and see if you can pick out first the tragedy of it all uh, at a funeral to look back over one's life and think that they're still clinging to these primary temptations. But see if you can pick out, it's just, I just come up with three here. I'm going to read just a couple of the lyrics. See if you can pick out appetites, shiny things, or throne grabbing in the lyrics of these songs. Number one, uh, the verb called the bittersweet symphony. Uh, some of you may not be familiar with that at all, but it's one of the top 40 most requested funeral songs. Playing it at the end of someone's life to look back over their life. And it's, it's a, it sounds like an existential crisis to me. Listen to the language. It's a bittersweet symphony, this life, trying to make ends meet. You're a slave to the money, and then you die. I'll take you down the only road I've ever gone down, I've been down. You know the one that takes you to the places where all the veins meet, yeah? No change, I can't change, I can't change. 
I can't change. I'm here in my mold. I'm here in my mold. I'm a million different people from one day to the next. Can you see this? We're a slave to the scene realm, the money and the, the appetites, and then we die. And I am, I, and his own words there in the lyrics, I feel like a million different people. And then just one day the next, I, I have this appetite and I'm this person and then I'm driven by this. And we see this, this crazy picture of people that are, are just, you, you think they're one thing, but then they're, they're playing out in their own imagination and the temptations of their mind. And all of a sudden it manifests in the scene realm and you just go, what in the world? There's just such a, a lack of, and that's what he's saying. It feels like I'm a, a million different people from one day to the next. ACDC, can you imagine at a funeral, talk about waving your fist in the face of God, that someone would actually want this at their own funeral? ACDC, highway to hell. But listen to this. Now, this is more base appetite, but it's also some throne grabbing. Living easy, loving free, season ticket on a one-way ride. One way, asking nothing, leave me. B, taking everything in my stride, don't need reason, don't need rhyme, ain't nothing I'd rather do, going down, party time. My friends are going to be there too, yeah, I'm on the highway to hell, on the highway to hell, highway to hell, I'm on the highway to hell, no stop sign, speed limit, nobody's going to slow me down. In other words, there's some throne grabbing, I'm going to do exactly what I'm going to do, and my life is going to be defined by one big party appetites, shiny things, whatever it is. I mean, this is my life. It's just a one-way ride here, and I'm on the highway to hell. Can you imagine having that played at your funeral that would in some way define your life? Maybe you're there this morning. You came across this on the internet, and you go, you know, that is me. I'm just telling you that is a purposeless life. You know, sin, by its very definition, I love the definition of sin, which is absolutely where you just negate your purpose. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a removing of the purpose of your life. That's really what sin is. Now, lastly, I want to talk to you just uh, on this last song, and many of you will know, well, I, I think it's the anthem in some way of where we live. I mean, there are many... Uh, I hear this song probably played in, in more places than just about anywhere you can imagine. I mean, where is our church? Uh, where, where we meet? It's on Frank Sinatra uh, is on it, and this is Frank Sinatra's song. You'll know it well. And this is this is the ultimate anthem to throne grabbing, but it also includes appetites and shiny things, in my view. Listen to the words of my way, right? And somehow we, we take pride in this. Uh, I do, this, is, this would be the last song. How did Jesus' life culminate? Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done in the garden. Not my will, not my way. And here's Frank singing my way. Listen to the words. And now the end is near, and so I face the final curtain, my friends. I'll say it clear. I'll state my case, of which I'm certain... I've lived a life that's full, no doubt filled with appetites and shiny things. I traveled each and every highway, every highway. I took every road. Any shiny thing I saw, I went after it. But more, much more than this, I did it my way. So you can see people all the time, even in the lyrics of songs, which are really a reflection of life, succumbing 
to these three categorical sins. And, and when we see this, we begin have to begin to ask the question, well, what now? Well, number one, here it is. We read it already. Jesus merely, how did he respond to these temptations? It is written. Ephesians chapter six, Paul tells the church at Ephesus essentially the same thing. Do what Jesus did. Are you ready? Verse 17, he says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. In other words, you want to battle? This is the only offensive weapon we have. Everything else is defensive. We can have a breastplate of righteousness and truth, you know, our, our loins girded with truth, and we have a helmet of salvation and, and all, but this is our offensive weapon. It is the word. Now, how can you turn and say it is written if you don't know what is written? More people succumb to temptation even after they give their lives to Jesus because they simply don't know the word. That's why we at Church of the Red Door will always be a content-driven church. Why are the messages so long? I know a lot of you uh, maybe hopefully lovingly joke that we, 45 to 50 minutes, why does it take that long? Well, some of that's just because I'm maybe not the best communicator. I need more time to unpack this. But we can't, I can't do it in 20 minutes, and you need more than 20 minutes. You need every day. Memorize scripture. Have a sword ready. Okay, so what are a sampling of just some of the verses that I use to destroy these three primary categories in my life. You gotta understand, this is the strategy right here. It's not just trying harder, it's a strategy. It's something you physically or at least mentally do. You don't physically take a sword, but you physically go. You may have to go to your Bible, call your group leader, call uh, one of the leaders here at Church at the Red Door, email somebody, say, I, I need a verse for this. what I'm feeling in my soul. Can you give me something I can battle with, give me something that I can battle with. I need a sword. And so picture this as a sword. I mean, I need something, you know, that I can offensively go on against the stuff that's going on in my head. It, re it requires faith, folks, and ultimate confidence that this sword is effective. It was for Jesus. And I'm telling you, Paul says us to pick it up because it's effective. But, of course, your knowledge of the Word is, is obviously an indication of how much you're going to be able to demolish these uh, temptations in your own life. So, a couple of things. So, let's take the lust of the flesh, or base appetites, as I said. So, appetites, if you will. So, the world says, well, we're just evolved animals. You know, this is, the kind, of, this is kind of what you get every day. You just get shoved down our throat more. You're just an evolved animal. These are just instincts we work on. And, you know, you look in the animal kingdom as an example, I'm just telling you, and, you know, men have, uh, the males have many partners or many, you know, you go to the animal kingdom and this is just how we're wired. Men are not wired to, you know, to, to build a home and create a home environment. And, uh, you know, they just, they, they can have many sexual partners and it's fine. And we're just evolved animals. So, uh, well, you know, the marriage thing is fine and, you know, maybe some constructs of community necessitate a family unit, but you can see our culture is clamoring to say, family, no, it's not that important. We can define family as we want. We can do whatever we want. We'll grab the throne of our own sovereignty and go down that road. And what basically the foundation of this is an appetite. <clears throat> What's one I use? Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. I, I've quoted this on my own 
<laughs> mental battle? I can't tell you how many times. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. You don't think these things go through my mind? You say, well, Jeff, you shouldn't say that. You know, Pastor Jeff, you should. I, that, I get hit with that stuff every single day. I mean, in the visible realm. I mean, you can't, you drive down, billboards coming at you. Can't get on the internet, can't get here, can't get there. Just overwhelming movies, media, everything coming at you. And then Satan there to say, well, you're just an evolved animal. You know, don't worry about all that. You, you have many partners. No, I have, I have one partner, one partner in life, in this realm, in the sexual realm. And that is my wife. And I am told very clearly, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Was Christ devoted to the church? You bet he was. Did he lay down his life? He absolutely did. And I'm called to do the same thing. So what do I do? I have those thoughts that may come at me during the day. I battle with it. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, love your wives. Over and over and over, I use it virtually every day. 2 Timothy 2.22, flee youthful lusts and pursue righteousness and faith and love and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Two things are happening here. Flee, and number two, do it with community. Do it with those who are also pursuing righteousness and truth. You can't, this is not a solo game. We talk about it all the time. I know this is what makes the pandemic so hard. This is why, you know, it, at least Zoom, thank God for Zoom, come together, it's, be on the phone, internet, email, whatever it is, but do pursue, do life as best you can, even if you can't do it, you know, hugging and loving each other like we normally do in a normal setting, but connect with people, be with people. Why? Because it tells us that's how we battle. So quote that verse, you struggling, flee youthful lusts. And pursue what? Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call upon the Lord from a pure heart. God, th this is a sampling. I said this is not uh, this is not completely comprehensive, but it's it's a sampling. This is not exhaustive this morning, but it, it gives you a feel. That's how, for instance, I battle those appetites. Maybe you have uh, an eating issue. Maybe you overeat, or you struggle with your weight, or or maybe inversely, you're bulimic, or all those kinds of things. These appetites, these desires, these these basic desires. There are scriptures too there for you. There are scriptures there too for you. Now, how about lust of the eyes? Lust of the eyes. So, so what is this? This is the shiny things. Hebrews eleven verse sixteen. I think about it all the time. And indeed, if they had been thinking of the country from which they went, I was talking about the those who walked in faith before us they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. In other words, I've got to get my eyes off shiny things. And again, like I said, you've, you've still got to have a home. I'm not saying let's find the ugliest home. Let's find the you know beat it, beat it, most beat up, ratty place we can find. I'm going to wear tattered clothes. That is not what this is saying, but I have to set my eyes, set my eyes. All the bi biblical patriarchs did. I think about this all the time. Hebrews 11, the hall of faith. Uh, they went out not knowing where they were going by faith, by faith, by faith. They were pursuing a heavenly city, not a world city, not a world dominion that we see all the way back in the temptation of Jesus. See all this kingdoms? I'll give it to you. 
His eyes were focused on another kingdom, on another kingdom. Colossians 3, 2, very clear. Set your mind on the things above. I quote this all the time here. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. Shiny things can grab you. They can envelop your life and overtake you. It's as simple as that. How do you know? What do you get up thinking about? What do you think about during the day? Well, yeah, you need to think about your assets and your your finances and, you know, be balanced and all the different things. I mean, you have to think about, yeah, we got, we got a plumbing problem. We have to call a plumber. I mean, this is not about never thinking about it, but what is your driving, in, the driving impetus in your life? Set your mind on things above. And then finally, just the boastful pride of life, the self-reliance, the uh, uh, autonomy. We all want autonomy. We want independence from anybody else. The world says, I can dictate my own script and life. I don't need any outside you know, source telling me what to do. I, I don't. I, I, I've got this. You're grabbing the throne. This is throne guard. So when I have the temptation to run my own life as I see fit and not listen to that still small voice of the Holy Spirit, of which I have been baptized in, John 15, verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can't do anything. Do you want to be fruitful? Do you, do you want to have impact in the unseen realm? Apart from Christ, you can't do anything. Is there any throne grabbing there? No, it's a bowing before the throne. Jesus is now on the throne at the right hand of the Father. The Bible actually says one day we will rule with him on thrones, but not now. We bow before the throne. We totally surrender to his throne and will always be, and that's what will make heaven heaven, is that we will surrender, surrender to the ultimate throne and on that throne, as we see in Revelation, is the Lamb of God. It's Jesus, the one who laid down his life for us. And then lastly, and many of you, I've quoted this so many times, but I, I love it so much. I, I may just use this in every sermon I ever preach because it, it just hits me so beautifully. Psalm 115, verses 1 and 3. 1 and 3. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. So it's not about us, not about throne grabbing. Because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. You're the, you're the embodiment of truth. Okay, Jesus says, I am the truth. You're the embodiment of truth. But our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. Our God is totally sovereign. Why would I even try to grab the throne away from God? He's sovereign. He does whatever he wants. Are you going to do that? See, I use those words every time that boastful pride that I can do this my way. You know, I did it my way. I do not want that to be the anthem of my life. Oh, that it could be said about me at my funeral. I'll tell my kids right now. If it could be said about me, and it won't be said perfectly. I, I would love for it to be said. I am an imperfect man. But if it could be said about me, at least he gave it a shot. All his heart was bent in this direction to do it the Lord's way and to live under the Lord's sovereign rule. He never grabbed the throne from Jesus. I pray that that can be part of it. Now, before we close here, because we are moving into this next week of Christmas and, and all this, uh, 
I have a dear friend. He's on our National Links board. Some of you may remember his son, Casey Martin, who uh, was on the PGA Tour and had a, a horrific leg issue and actually had case went all the way to the Supreme Court so that he might be able to take a golf cart to play in some of these tour events, and he actually uh, won the case. And uh, fascinating, loved Casey, and Casey's now the head uh, golf coach at Oregon, and they won the national championship a number of years ago uh, under his leadership. But his dad, King Martin, is on our national board. King sent this to me this last week, and his business partner's sons produced this, and I thought it would be perfect in light of thinking, number one, remembering this week this uh, time that the world celebrates the birth of Jesus, whether or not this was the time Jesus was born. We don't know when Jesus was born, but we, that's the time that the world kind of looks to celebrate that we too would remember what in fact Jesus did. He suffered for us. And part of that suffering was being tempted like we are. God taking on flesh, being tempted. That is a bizarre, hard to wrap your head around thing. But I want to play this, and hopefully this gives you a strong sense of the very the spirit that we at Church of the Red Door here want to take into this week of celebration for the coming of Emmanuel. So I'm going to play this, and then I'll come back and close this. Christmas isn't just a time to decorate your house, to spend time with loved ones, and to open long-awaited presents. Christmas is a time to remember. To remember that salvation doesn't come from within, it comes from above. To remember that infinitely better than the magic of Christmas is the miracle of Emmanuel. To remember that God was not and is not untouched by the pain and suffering of this world. To remember that Jesus isn't just part of the Christmas story, but Christmas is part of the Jesus story. To remember that there is no grace without a cross and no cross without a manger. To remember that Jesus doesn't just want us to remember what he did, but to join him in what he is doing. So this year, let the lights remind you of the light of the world who came into darkness for us. Let the gifts remind you of the greatest gift of all. And this year, make your heart like Bethlehem and receive the King. Wasn't that just beautifully done? King Martin, thank you so much for sending that to me. And, and they gave us the permission to play that this morning at Church of the Red Door. So uh, thank you that for that so much. Uh, remember, are, will we be people who remember not only the birth of Jesus, but the purpose and then our task? You know, when I think about these three categories of sin and the temptation in my life, I have fallen so many times. I have failed dramatically along my 30-year road of walking with Jesus, all, all the way back to the time I was in college and stood up and said, I, I want to be saved. I, I want to get, and I got baptized after that. And from that point, I look back at, at times of just real brutal uh, challenges, and I didn't maybe understand the word. And even when I did, I made some decisions that were poor decisions. And I will continue at times to make poor decisions. I will not love my wife as Christ loved the church. I will not love my children. I will not love my neighbors as I should. I'll think first of myself. I, there are all kinds of things. Shiny things will be distracting for me, and I'll, I'll be I'll succumb to this. I, I don't want to. It's my intention to walk in the integrity of Jesus, but 
Here's some things. Get back up. One of the things about the defined believers is when the Lord moves on your heart, that you're succumbing to the shiny things, or you're, com- you're succumbing to your appetites, Jeff, or you're succumbing to uh, the boastful pride. You're throne grabbing, Jeff. What are you doing? If these four hallmarks can define you, if, it, if there can be integrity and honesty, if there can be transparency, you have to be transparent. You know, openly have friends that you, the Bible tells, confess your sins one to another. These are powerful, powerful things. Move in humility. Look, I, I, you know, I, I don't, I want, I want people to like me, but I also want, I want to move in a place of what's real. I I mean, I am a fellow journeyer with you on this road. I fall, I, I struggle, I, but I'm increasing in righteousness. I am more like Jesus than I was five years ago because I want to walk in honesty and transparency and humility, and ultimately I want to walk in love as Jesus walked in love. Look, I think what we can see is this is, this is about the not succumbing to, to, to temptation is not just about our own personal good. You need to ca- catch this. This is not just about our own personal good, although it will remove the messiness and the chaos from our life anytime we remove sin from our life. But it goes beyond that. It has effect on your family. It has effect on your neighbors. It has effect on your calling. There are people out there potentially that can be radically impacted by the fruitfulness of your life as you live in honesty and and, and, and all the transparency and humility and love that you need to walk in as you battle temptation in your mind with the sword. Learn the word. I want to close with this last idea. I saw an article about this this last week, and it really hit me. There's some, in law enforcement, they use this new thing called asymmetric information management. Now, what does that mean? The uh, acronym there is, is AIM. AIM, asymmetric information management. What is that? Well, One of the things that they do to ascertain, it's actually much more effective. Uh, A lot of these studies are much more effective than any kind of lie detector tests, which are always open for possible issues and not as reliable as they should be. But what they do is they bring in a potential suspect and they interrogate them. But before they do, they tell them that here's what we're going to do. We're going to ask you all kinds of questions and then, but you need to know that over time, the more details you give us, the better we will be able to ascertain your guilt or innocence. They tell them that up front. And they say, once you have this, then you'll know. And then they begin the interrogation process. And it's it's unbelievable. It, those who are honestly innocent are have no problem at all giving the most minute of details. They can say, well, I was here, and then we did this, and they're, they're, they can feel there's no sense of fear. They're just going to divulge every bit of detail that they can because, as they told them, the more information they can give them, the more detail they can give them, the better they will be able to ascertain. Then those who are truly guilty talk in broad language. They are very hesitant to go into detail. They tell them this up front. Now, it's a, it's a fascinating look at, but it's pretty simplistic. Here's my question for you this morning. Would you be able to give fascinating detail about your relationship with Jesus 
Or would you just talk in broad strokes? I mean, if somebody told you up front, Jesus told you up front, or someone told you, we're trying to ascertain whether or not you have a personal, you know, intimate relationship with Jesus. Would some of the details, well, they would be for me, well, yes, I have an intimate relationship with him. I battle temptation. I, I learned the scripture. I know Jesus is the word. I could, I could actually talk about the Bible, not just hear the Bible preached every, you know, once a week, but I might actually have a Bible and read it. And, and I would talk about my study of the Word. I would talk about, as I studied the Word, I came in a deeper relationship with Jesus. I would talk about my battle with temptation and using the Word. I would include all those details. Could you include those details of your life to prove that, in fact, you did have a personal relationship with Jesus? Or would you talk in broad strokes? Maybe something akin to, well, you know, I went to church and you know, kind of got involved in this and, you know, we gave a little money over here. Or we kind of helped, helped feed the poor over here a little bit. Those are details, but would it go deeper? Would it go into the very, the very essence of your own walk in your mind? Would, would it include the battle of temptation? Would it include your ability to use the word? Would it include all those details? I just found that fascinating. So my hope for us as we move into this week is that we would honor the coming of Emmanuel, that the God who would become, become man, to take on human flesh, what we're celebrating this, this next week, and that we would then remember, as that was so beautifully portrayed, that we would remember what was the purpose so that we would go out and be a light to the world. You can't be a light, folks, if you can't overcome temptation in some very substantive ways. So anyway, I hope that was helpful for us this morning. I hope that you too will learn. I, I hope that uh, get friends. I mean, we've got so many incredibly gifted people, as I alluded to earlier, who can help you, help you apply scripture to things that you may be struggling with in your mind. And hopefully I'll be equipping you or Paul or whoever's in standing behind this lectern that will be equipping you on an ongoing basis, plus all the women's studies and the the men's studies and the links fellowships and the home groups and all the things that you'll constantly be equipped to know how to simply say this when those thoughts come. It is written. We love you. I hope you have a great holiday season. I know it may be a little challenging. Some of you not able to travel or have family coming in and out. Just know that we love you, that we're thinking of you and praying for you. Have a fantastic Christmas week.